You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, Bill, how are you doing? Welcome. It's just after eight o'clock on Tuesday um, evening. And um, it's the Sports Therapy Association podcast. How are you doing? So I had to think there. I'm in Finland. I'm a bit weirded out. One, because I'm sitting in a hotel room. It's just a change in, in, in structure. It's not very good for me. And also, um, not it's kind of relevant, I suppose, but a little bit of jet lag. Who would have thought? It wasn't arranged because Finland's two hours ahead. So in fact, it's kind of um, 10 o'clock here and I'm pretty tired. Nearly when I got myself a coffee, but I thought my guests would just murder me if I was sitting here having a coffee at 10 o'clock in the evening. So I couldn't even do that. Um, but yeah, so all about sleep tonight. Very excited. Um, just before I get too much into it, for anybody new who is listening, and sometimes you email me to remind me uh, to tell you this. My name is Matt Phillips. I'm the host of Sports Therapy Association podcast. And we go out um, on Tuesdays at eight o'clock GMT or GMT plus one, if it's daylight saving, um, to give you information about bringing the evidence, putting the evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Um, we do go out live because I've always enjoyed live chat, which means that if you do want to join us live, then all you got to do is head along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. That's where we go out on. But this month, because it's such an important topic, i.e. sleep, I'm also putting it out live uh, to Run Chat Live, which is my website and kind of other thing. Um, it's going out to the Run Chat Live um, Facebook page. And also it's on Run Chat Live podcast as well, because sleep, as we have seen for the last three weeks with our fantastic guests, affects everybody. If you live for more than seven days, then you sleep in one form or another. So um, that includes runners. Um, so um, and thank you for the feedback for people who have been watching it on Run Chat Live. I'm glad to hear that you're pleased to see One Chat Live podcast chucking out some great stuff again. So, yeah, we got to episode 98. Um, just looking at people joining us live now, Gary Benson, who's the founder of the STA um, Association or Sports Therapy Association, has entered the room. If you do join us live, the nice thing is I can bring your name up and your message onto the screen. So it's a great way to network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you're listening to this and you want to join us live, then just pop along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel um, next week. Um, I will let you know at the end of this episode what the new focus is for next month of May. Anyway, so we reach week four, the final episode of um, a, a marvellous month's um, sleep awareness focus. Um, we've had some incredible guests um, and we're bringing it all together tonight with the reason I even got into this in the first place. Um, but before I bring uh, Dr. Amy Bender up, just um, again, a huge thanks to Jesse Cook, who opened up in week one giving us a wonderful introduction to how our, our perception and knowledge of, of the different stages of sleep and what sleep does has changed and evolved thanks to modern research. Um, and then we had um, uh, Dr. Olivia Walsh, who joined us afterwards for a focus on wearables, which generated some lovely conversations and emails about the reliability and the uses and the potential dangers of Fitbit and Arrowing and Apple Watch and all these other things, which in theory track stages of sleep. Um, so that was that was an amazing um, episode as well. Last week, we had Dr. Jonathan Charest, who's the director of Athlete Sleep Service at Centre for Sleep and Human Performance, which was amazing for so many reasons. Um, he really humanised it again and just gave a wonderful message of um, really relevant message for our clients and patients of not scaring the hell out of people. Um, I've got scared myself as someone who suffered from sleep for now 50 plus years of sleep quality issues. Then I'm scared. I know my you know, depending on what I read, I catastrophize, as we know that our patients do if we 
show them a picture of a spine with a big red dot on it or kind of like, you know, squash some donuts together and watch the jam oozing out and going, that's what happens when you sit down and then wonder why they get back pain. So um, it's been a wonderful experience for me. And tonight we're going to bring it all together with Dr. Um, Amy Bender, who's the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra, who I was a, had the pleasure of being my guest back in August 2021, um, nearly a year ago, um, who did an episode, episode 63 of How Sleep Affects Sports and Fitness. And that led to me actually having a chat with Amy and the other marvellous people at Cerebra in Canada and doing a five-week study myself using the Cerebra in-home polysomnography or the polysomnogram if you want the kind of the noun and the instrument that was used and tonight we're going to talk about that and because it'll be a nice way of talking about the different stages of sleep and what we're looking at and NREM versus REM um, also we'll obviously be going about the differences between wearables and that and maybe talking about future where something like that will be more readily available so that we can help people with sleep issues because we know I think in the UK at the moment I did a little updated research we're talking about 39% of adults in the UK now report sleeping less than seven hours. And the research is showing if you get less than seven hours, then you enter some potentially um, life affecting um, kind of zones. Less than six hours, it starts to get even more um, of a kind of a wake up message. that You need to do something about it. So we'll be talking about that later on. Right. I think that's a long enough um, intro. I've left Dr. Amy Bender down in the lobby for long enough. So feel free to ask questions, people, if you're listening live, if you listen to podcasts and thank you very much. Um, again, leave comments, give us a rating and any any questions you do have, just send to Matt at the STA.co.uk and I will get back to you, I promise. So without further ado, I shall now bring up Dr. Amy Bender. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming back. Thanks, thanks for the month. Thanks you. Thank you for being the the catalyst for for an amazing month on behalf of myself and all the people who've downloaded it. Um, then it's been amazing, really good. And it's thanks to you uh, being a guest um, a year ago now. How do you feel? Does it feel like a year since you last on here? Uh, it, it doesn't feel like a year by any means, but I you, I know last time we were having some technical issues and you were sounding kind of like a Mickey Mouse. And yeah. so I, I'm, I'm glad that that issue has been taken care of. I know technology has changed since then. I've got a beautiful background to me as well. It's yeah, I've matured a lot in many ways um, over a year. So, but, um, but yeah, I just want to, I just want to comment on the previous, uh, I know you're doing sleep awareness month and um, all three of your guests I'm collaborating with, so I know them very well, but um, fantastic interviews by them, uh, really impressed. Like, I think it was a good variety of topics as well. And um, the, these folks, they're rising stars, and I think they're going to really make a difference in the sleep field. So that's to kind of show the quality of, of those guests that you had, too. I'll tell you what, between them, they they shone a very, very good light on sleep researchers and sleep geeks. I mean, they all had wonderful um, ability to chat about it, but in a beautiful, fun way with passion and simplifying something which is, after all, very complex. Um, and the feedback I got for all three of them was like, wow, this is amazing. We need more. And in fact, if if I think Jonathan last week um, 
kind of agreed on behalf of everybody that there'll be a part two. So that'll be exciting. Maybe after you guys have got together on the work you're doing at the moment in a few months time and to talk about that. But um, it became pretty clear with all episodes. There was so much more we could have talked about. Mm. It all feels mm-hmm. a big topic. I'm sure that's going to happen tonight as well. I'm just saying hi to people entering the room and who are joining us live. Becky, how you doing? Um, thanks for joining us again. Glenn Murphy says, oh, I just woke up. Evening all. That's okay, Glenn. That's fine. I'm not going to judge. It's fine. There's no judging here. Um, so um, thanks, people. And don't forget, ask questions if you have any. So um, let's have a little just introduction of yourself. I know we did this a year ago, but I think based on what we're talking about tonight, including kind of Cerebra, because um, you did have a life before Cerebra, obviously. Um, but Cerebra is the company w- who created the polysomnogram, which I used for five weeks. So maybe a little, yeah, about yourself and how you got involved with Cerebra. Sure, yeah. I uh, I started in the sleep field. Um, just basically, my aunt was a sleep technologist, and she invited me out to her sleep lab and uh, showed me what she did, showed me kind of the translation of physiological signals on the screen and scored different stages of sleep and different events occurring during the night. So that really piqued my interest in sleep. And I volunteered at a sleep lab to try and get into the sleep field and landed a job at as a sleep technologist at uh, Washington State University Sleep and Performance Research Center. So I was the sleep technologist at a lab that was just opening up um, to look at the impact of sleep deprivation on cognition. Um, and then wanted to kind of push a little further and so ended up uh, getting my master's and PhD in experimental psychology at the same lab focusing on sleep EEG, so brainwave activity of sleep during the night. Um, and then ended up in Canada because I did a postdoc up here through University of Calgary working with Canadian Olympic team athletes and optimizing their sleep. And so have kind of continued that work through. Um, was a senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center. So understanding the importance of mental health and sleep optimization for mental health. And then ended up at Cerebra just over a year ago um, as the director of clinical sleep science, really combining like all my interest here and the fact that taking me back to my roots with analysis of EEG. So we have some metrics related to that as well. And we're just really trying to better diagnose and treat different sleep disorders and also just help the everyday person sleep better. Fantastic. To give people an idea of what we're talking about, um, what is the difference between what I had? And I'll bring up a picture in a sec whilst you're talking, actually. What's the difference between the bit of kit that was used in my five week sleep study compared to common wearables like kind of things you put on your wrist or things you put under your mattress? What are the differences? Yeah, I mean, they're I, I, starting kind of at the lowest level um, would be the consumer device. So, for example, I'm wearing an Aura Ring right now. Um, so Aura Ring, Fitbit, Whoop devices are all kind of um, measuring like a proxy of sleep. Um, so not necessarily including EEG activity. There are some wearables out there that do like Muse and Dream. Um, but that's kind of the it's 
either like only EEG or only on the finger, or only on the wrist. It's not really combining a lot of the physiological signals that we see. And so that would be kind of the lowest level is those consumer technologies that aren't really supposed to be used for clinical purposes. Um, and then from there, there's devices where it's called a level four device where you wear it on your wrist and it's looking at your oximetry or your desaturations during the night. And from there, we have a level three device, which usually includes uh, airflow. So it's looking at your breathing only during the night. So airflow, potentially some respiratory um, and oximeter as well. And then for the CerebraSleep system, we're looking at level two technology. So the biggest differentiator there is including EEG along with all of those other physiological signals um, and additionally including like leg leads, which you wouldn't get with a level three in order to kind of bring the laboratory into the home and study sleep in the home where we all are sleeping. Um, and from there, it would be a level one device, which would be more in-lab um, PSG, where you have a, a technician attending your sleep study. So if something falls off, they would go in and fix that. Um, so those are kind of the different degrees, I guess, of, of sleep studies. Um, what you were wearing in particular, so with our device, we have the capability to look at everything you would get in a sleep lab in the home. Um, but we also have the capability for more long-term use. So for you, it was probably unrealistic for you to wear, you know, an airflow, airflow cannula, uh, belts, uh, leg leads, you know, for 30, 35 nights in a row. So for you, we were looking at a different kind of configuration where we were looking at the EEG activity, but we were also measuring muscle activity of the chin. We were looking at eye movements as well. Um, and so that can be used for more long-term purposes. Uh, but we are working on developing, you know, a miniature version of this so that people can wear it more long-term. Um, and I don't know, you experienced it yourself. So I'm curious what your thoughts were on wearing that for that long. Um, did you get used to it or did you find that it was um, kind of annoying at the end? No, I got used to it. In the end, I got used to it. In the beginning, it was tricky, but mostly because if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see the image I've just put on the screen. But if you're joined us live, this is another reason to join us live. Then I'll talk you through a few images, which I'll bring up on solo now, but you'll still really hear me. So basically, yeah, it's pretty. If you're a runner, if you listen to Run Chat Live, then it's the equivalent of like a running head beam on your head because that's kind of size. Um, and then there was, um, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four four yeah four um kind of sticky little pads which you had to stick to various parts of your head um and then also down on the neck um so one on the muscle on the sternocleidomastoid and then one on a bone on the mastoid process behind your ear um which we can maybe go through in a second about the strategic placing of these um yeah it was kind of difficult in the first week but i think again for different reasons and it's interesting hopefully the feedback i've given will be useful um i i realize that my forehead is not symmetrical i've been telling you for about 15 years now people human beings are not symmetrical it's normal to be asymmetrical so when you've got a, a 
some uh, something to put on your forehead and the idea is going to sit even each side one of the sides of my frontal bone is definitely more kind of convex than the other so as soon as i put it on i could feel that two of the electrodes were kind of more in contact than the other and i don't know whether that added to propensity or the likelihood of it coming off at all um but apart from that anatomically me having a freakishly weird shaped forehead there was also the fact that i move a lot in my sleep um i i I, my wife elbows me probably once every month because I'm lying there with one arm 90 degrees up in the air and I'm literally stroking my arm up and down for some reason. I don't know what it's about. I'm a stroker at nighttime and she's like, stop it. It looks really weird. And um, so, and I'm doing this in my sleep. So um, I didn't, I have, when I was young, I used to sleepwalk a little bit. So maybe there's some kind of like um, kind of ortho, what's it, ambulation or something going on in there where I'm not quite having all my muscles kind of disconnected whilst I'm sleeping. But so a couple of times in the beginning, I actually dreamt. It was almost as if my subconscious was going, we don't want this on anymore. Thank you much. My brain's going, get it off. I know what we'll do. We'll make him believe he's having a dream. And then uh, that it's actually time to get up. So probably three times in the beginning, I had a dream, you know, that, well, that sounded like it could have been quite deep. I had a dream that it was time to get up and I heard my alarm going off. And, and, and therefore in my sleep, I took the whole thing off. And it was only then I woke up and went, what's going on? Why is this in my hands? And I remembered, oh, yeah, I had a dream that it was time to get up. And I've looked at the oh. clock and it's like two in the morning, which is really kind of weird because, you know, it's it's a bit antiquated now, this idea. I think it was Freud, wasn't it, who said that your dreams is your subconscious way of trying to, you know, your it, it suppresses your id and stops you, you know, you know, this is why suddenly faces change. But it, it, all, it really felt like a battle with my body going, playing around with my dreams to get the job done. Um, so I did take it off initially. Once I got used to it, fine. Great bit of kit. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, once I was kind of six days in, I don't think I attacked it anymore. Um, I kind of played around a bit with, with how I was putting it on. I think you gave a recommendation of leaving it a minute after the wipe and stuff. So, yeah, mm -hmm. the instructions, I think, was very important. Um, but yeah, so, um, yes, that was how it went, but I suppose it's an individual thing, isn't it? Ideally, this would be changed depending on the person you've got lying down. I'm interested on in, 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 in a, that's, this is the problem, isn't it? In a laboratory one, you've got, it's really uncomfortable and two, you're not in your own bed. So the idea behind this bit of kit is if anything, to get more accurate information, potentially with some respects compared to a lab. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's using those same signals that you would get in the lab, but it's bringing it into the home. And um, we do see that you sleep differently in a new environment as well. And so especially that first night, um, sleep patterns tend to be different. And part of your brain is actually more awake when you're in a new environment. Um, and when you're at home, it's a lot. So there's a lot of differences between in lab versus in home. Um, in lab, you know, you may have a bit more disturbed sleep, but you don't have your partner, you don't have your pet waking up, you don't have your natural environment that you're sleeping in as well. And so it is, it's just a more accurate picture of, of how you sleep normally. And to have the capability to do it more than one night in a row is also important because there is a lot of variability from night to night. And if you only get one shot in the lab, um, you know, are those results as accurate as they could be?
And, and, you know, there are situations where the lab is important for a person to go to. So I'm not saying we need to get rid of the laboratory environment. I just think that more tests could be done at home with more information that you get in the lab. Mm-hmm. How is it in because the actual Cerebra unit itself, is that being used in Canada now with the general public? Yes, yes. It is being used for clinical purposes. So people with sleep disorders um, can get this test through certain um, number of our partners. And we are working on getting FDA approval. And then we're going to work towards Europe in your neck of the woods um, down the road as well. Okay, so that's quite exciting because I guess that's opened the doors to a whole load of more, much more data and kind of people with actual problems which need helping so um okay um so yeah just to stress what i had on my head was probably 30 percent of all the stuff which you could have given me to attach to myself so it's only a small portion of it but it does like you say without the measuring the eeg without measuring that you you can't get an indication of sleep stages can you so all of these wearables which are giving you how much time you slept is spent in REM and NREM and deep. Is that kind of an approximation based on other kind of factors or how, how far are they away from the marks? I know a lot of people, we had feedback saying, so what my watch telling me that I was certain percentage in REM or not enough deep or too much deep. Is that all rubbish or? I mean, it's it's not as accurate. So there are utilities of these wearables by using this information across weeks, months, years. Um, so there's definitely utility for these. But typically, it comes with uh, total sleep time. So looking at sleep, overall sleep across the entire night, wake during the night, those kind of things. Uh, where they struggle a bit is with the sleep stages. So um, there's been a few studies come out showing that They just aren't accurate when it comes to the sleep stages uh, when we compare these wearables to polysomnography. And so that's where there are limitations. And I mean, I've experienced it with myself, too. Um, You know, it'll tell me that I have 4% deep sleep. And it's just like, I'm, I I just kind of laugh. (laughs) Um, And so you don't want to pay too close attention to the sleep stages that it's giving you. Um, my argument would be that even if we have the perfect wearable that is able to measure these sleep stages perfectly, um, there's not a lot of uh, relationships between these stages and your overall like sleep quality. Um, and so that's kind of my take is that even if we could get good sleep stage information, how does that relate to clinical outcomes? And we're not seeing much of a relationship there. And so what I'm really excited about is using our microanalysis of the EEG with ORP and looking at sleep depth on a much more finer grain level than just the stages. Very interesting. Um, yeah, because even if there's, we, we still don't know if I'm correct, if I'm wrong, we still don't know how to increase or decrease the time we spend in certain stages anyway, do we? So even if you do find that you're lacking here in theory, then the only thing we can do is say, well, try and get better overall sleep quality and then hopefully everything will catch up. 
Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's kind of generic advice out there. So, for example, if you don't normally exercise and you go and exercise today for an hour, it's likely that you will increase your deep stages of sleep. Um, But when you're already doing that regularly, when you're, you know, following good sleep hygiene advice, it's really challenging to to affect those different stages based on what you do. Um, They just aren't sensitive enough. And they're looking at uh, 30 seconds of data. And, um, and there's, you know, there's four stages across the entire night. So there's a lot that's going on, even within those stages that aren't really being captured. And so, yeah, that's why I, I'm, I really like uh, the ability to look at uh, sleep depth across the entire night on a much more like fine grained level. Just to give listeners a little idea, though, although what a to differentiate between what we do suspect or know between NREM and REM, what are some of the things we think could be a result health wise of not getting enough NREM or not getting enough REM? What have they been linked to? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to differentiate those components because a lot of times they'll do studies where they um, like will wake you up during deep sleep, you know, and so when you get into that deep stage of sleep, it'll wait, they'll play a sound and wake you up. Um, But the problem with that is that you're having more disturbances than you normally would. And so it's not kind of a pure example of of what happens when stage three is reduced. Um, there's just some kind of confounding factors. Uh, similar, similar with REM as well. So a lot of REM, you know, we go through sleep cycles from non-REM to REM in about 90 minutes. And so um, towards the end of the night, our REM periods get, get longer. Um, so that one's a bit easier to maybe untangle a little bit. Like if you're cutting your sleep off, um, you know, what happens functionally. But still, we have a lot of stage two, a lot of stage one occurring in the last half of the night, too. So even that's very difficult. Um, and so big picture is to just kind of look at total sleep time across the entire night and not worry so much about the stages per se. Okay. I'm going to try and stop worrying them because I have been about links between I mean, as far as when I read into it, I've probably read far too much. I'm like somebody who's got a painful Achilles and Googles it and discovers that it's probably because I've got cancer <laughs> or something. I'm that bad now asleep. And it's funny being a therapist and having to check myself, but I read how REM is kind of being linked to the creativity, the, the kind of organization of thoughts and, and recreating of your, yourself every night. And that's linked with kind of like the anthropology of it of why man has got shorter period of sleep and yet kind of like a lot more REM stage mm-hmm. than our fellow primates. And that's why they think that REM is basically the secret to our success at socializing and creating cultural social, mm-hmm. you know, but, and also the link between REM and autism and how babies with less REM have been shown maybe um, to um, have cognitive issues later on. Um, but what you're saying is, well, Matt, put the brakes on a little bit. These are all studies which maybe have got their flaws. And at the moment, the best thing to do is just look at the way of getting overall maximum quality and quantity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, okay, um, you know, there are like certain functions related to these different stages. So, for example, um, REM is related to procedural memory. So if you're 
learning a new task. REM seems to be important in that area. But so is slow wave, like slow wave is involved in pruning memories and creating new memories in the glymphatic system, you know, so yeah, it's, it's just, for me, it's about uh, sleep duration. Are you getting at least seven hours as an adult? It's about how can we improve that quality of sleep as well, you know, so you don't want to have a caffeine at a coffee at 10 p.m. like you were going to. And I, I appreciate you uh, right, considering you, me as a guest. <laughs> but also timing as well. So timing of sleep matters. So if you're more of a night owl, can you go to sleep more on that night owl schedule? Or can we introduce some interventions to make your your circadian rhythm more normal? So, yeah, uh, duration, quality, and timing are are those important elements. Fantastic. Right. You mentioned the C word, caffeine. Yeah. Um, we decided, didn't we, when we were chewing things over, I decided I can't just sleep and have you tracking data. I need to have a task here. I need to have a goal. So we did a week, didn't we, of caffeine. And I do drink a lot of caffeine. I always have. It's kind of my go-to fuel for dealing with maybe the 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 the, um, uh, the aftermath of not sleeping very well. So after a week of regular having my shots and loving life, I just went cold turkey. Then did another two weeks, didn't wait to get it out of the system and then and then continued tracking it. So um, just before we look at the results, we will do because it's already 8.30. What's the, what do we know about caffeine and how it hinders sleep and sticks around in the body? What, yeah, give us a little lowdown on caffeine. Yeah, in general, it, um, it kind of takes you longer to fall asleep when you're consuming caffeine too close to bedtime. So um, that's one of the impacts. It can reduce more of that deeper sleep activity. So some studies show a reduction in stage three sleep. So that deepest stage of sleep uh, when we're drinking coffee too close to bedtime. Um, other studies don't really see an impact on stages, but they do see more of that brainwave activity. The slow wave activity is impacted. Um, and so more awakenings, more arousals can occur with, with caffeine consumption. Um, and then we actually just submitted an abstract recently to the European, European Sleep Research Society meeting where we were looking at uh, caffeine timing too close to bedtime. And we found that those people who had coffee or caffeine within four hour, four to five hours of bedtime um, reported to be less sleepy uh, before bed. They reported their levels, their deep sleep using ORP as a metric was much higher than when they weren't drinking caffeine too close to bed. They reported their sleep quality to be poorer and their, um, there was somewhat of an effect on their reaction time as well. So um, those are kind of the overall impacts of caffeine, but it does depend on the person and how they metabolize caffeine. So if you are a fast metabolizer, you know, you may be able to get away with having a coffee six hours before bedtime, for example, and I wouldn't recommend that. Um, because it is hard to tell how it is impacting your sleep depth. Um, but we do process caffeine and we metabolize caffeine differently based on the individual. So that is something to consider as well. Yeah. Um, 
it's i've heard you a few times now yeah like you're quite clear that basically that for the most of the population especially if you haven't got access to these tests last coffee should be around 12 one o'clock yeah i'd say more probably 11 noon, oh wow it's, wow. it's, 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 it's getting earlier mm-hmm. yeah. well if, the, if we think about how long it takes you to metabolize caffeine so the average half-life is four to six hours so if you're having a coffee at noon um, you know, half of the caffeine will be out of your system by about 5 p.m. Right. But a quarter of that caffeine will be in your system by 10 p.m. So which could be the equivalent of like having a black tea before bedtime. And we would never really do that. So, um, yeah, I'm not saying everyone should, you know, drink decaf or whatever. But I think Playing around with that curfew time may be a good piece of advice. Especially, of course, if you're somebody who who knows that and re- and, and it's recognised that you don't have any sleep problems, then go ahead and have your coffee and enjoy it. But if you are somebody who figures that I'm having issues here, I'm waking up, blah 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 blah, then that would be one of the first port of calls to to look at and test and try and um, come off that a little bit and stop drinking after eleven. Yeah, yeah. Even for myself, I mean, I was, uh, I had, my, I got my master's, my PhD. I was in grad school for a while and I was basically chugging the coffee to get myself through that. And I had two kids along the way during grad school. So it was a really, uh, sleep deprived state for me. And, um, so I, I did need that coffee to get me through. And it wasn't until my third, my youngest was, um, six months old that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and get rid of coffee. I'm going to try and go decaf. And, um, and I, I slept so well. So even like during my grad school days, I thought I was sleeping pretty good, but it wasn't until I got rid of the caffeine that I really realized how much better I was sleeping without it. And now I, I mean, I pretty much have decaf coffee in my um, espresso maker and I will have, you know, like half calf Starbucks uh, coffee at Americano or whatever. Um, so I'm not totally anti-caffeine, but I think it's just to be strategic about how you're using it. Okay. Right then. Um, I guess it's time to, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want it all to be about me, but maybe when we kind of bring up some images about the results you got from my particular study, it'll open up conversations as to what we're measuring, what this could mean and kind of what it shows with regards to, maybe coming off caffeine so i've got the slides down here um i can bring them up when i do bring them up if you listen to the podcast you're not going to see any of these slides okay so we'll make sure that we're talking and rather than just saying if we look at the blue line we'll kind of say what is on the screen for you people who have joined us live you'll be able to see a full screenshot of these um and we'll still be able to talk from behind them so um do you want me to bring them up in order sure yeah why don't you bring them up um Right, so we'll bring up the images. I'll expand this to full so that everyone who has joined us live can see it. Let me get rid of that little uh, thing at the bottom there. If you want to come back on screen, Amy, then just say, um, kind of show me again or something. I'll bring you back. There you go. So what do we got on the screen, Amy? Okay, so uh, a special shout out to the science team at Cerebra. We had uh, Vasola Arayubi working on this and Dr. Carrie Lambing uh, helping prepare these results for you. 
Um, so what we found overall was that you had about a 86% sleep efficiency. So while you were in bed, you were sleeping about 86% of the time. And of course, there's time it takes you to fall asleep. You might wake up during the middle of the night. Um, but overall, it's a pretty good sleep efficiency. Um, and what we found was with the time it takes you to fall asleep. So it was looking like about an average of about seven minutes, um, which is borderline, I would say, potentially sleep deprivation may be involved. And we'll see that a little bit later on. Um, but ideally, you do want to fall asleep within 30 minutes uh, normally. And so this is around seven minutes, you know, five minutes is more like might be more sleep deprived if, it, if you're falling asleep that quickly. So that's something to keep an eye out for people out there who are falling asleep too quickly. We don't want it to be too quickly. That could mean there's sleep deprivation involved. And ideally, we want that under 30 minutes. And if not, we want to get help for trying to improve that. Just a quick question. Sorry to butt in, but how do you tell from the information you got from me when the moment of me being asleep is? So this is, again, these results are somewhat preliminary because we're using our auto scoring system to score these sleep records. So we have a way of um, automatically knowing when you fall asleep, automatically knowing your different sleep stages, your sleep depth, that kind of thing. Um, so this would be the time that you started the recording till the time that we saw sleep. And so on average, that was about seven minutes. And this was detected via auto scoring. Uh, the gold standard would be to have a sleep technologist, you know, look through and make sure these results are good. But in general, uh, overall, auto scoring is, is relatively good. And we saw that for you at the time you started the recording to the time you fell asleep into that first stage, it was around seven minutes. So the, uh, the reason I asked the sensor I had on the on the neck muscle on the sternocleidomastoid there is there a certain because when you fall asleep is there going to be a change in muscle tone that's kind of picked up? What was the idea of the sensor on the muscle for on my neck? Yeah, so uh, I, and maybe I didn't answer your question fully, but we're looking at EEG activity here, so brain waves. So when okay. we see, yeah, the wakefulness, the alpha waves disappear, we start to see sleep. We start to see slower waves occurring. So that's what we would define as the gotcha. sleep stage. The muscle activity was more related to detect REM, so rapid eye movement sleep, where our muscles are paralyzed. We have atonia, you know, our, our voluntary muscles are paralyzed. So um, that would be why we would be using that chin EMG or chin electromyogram looking at muscle activity. Got it. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, because I was supposed to be on the chin, but because I had got stubble and a little bit of kind of macho beard going on, yeah, I put it on my neck. So I interrupted, mm -hmm. right. So the next one was self-reported poor sleep quality. Yeah. So overall, we had to kind of fill out a questionnaire um, uh, using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And we found that your score was about eight, whereas normal is usually five or less. Um, so it was slightly elevated overall. And I know that kind of coincides with your self-report of sleep quality. And most often you rated your sleep as fairly bad. So just to kind of give people a sense of what your uh, sleep quality or subjective sleep quality looked like, it was slightly elevated there. 
And then when it came to insomnia as well, so this is another kind of questionnaire that we use. Um, we did find that it wasn't full-blown insomnia for you, but it was more of a sub-threshold. Um, not normal, but potentially a little bit higher uh, scores for insomnia. And then overall, using the upper sleepiness scale, we found that you didn't really have any sleepiness occurring um, during the day. So overall, you seem to be functioning pretty well, um, at least when it comes to sleepiness. Okay. Right. Would you like the next slide? Sure. I've got so many questions, but I'm just going to sharp now and talk so we'll be able to know otherwise. Okay. So moving on now, um, we've got the graph up here. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, so uh, XY axis, we've got total sleep time, TST. Yeah, TST on the uh, y-axis. And then we got night 1 to 30 along the bottom. Yes. So overall, this is just kind of a picture of how your different nights of sleep and how much you were sleeping on those nights. And on average, we saw that you were only sleeping about 5.6 hours. And again, I think these results are, are a little preliminary. Um, it would probably be a bit higher if we had like a sleep technician scoring all of these studies. Um, but but it is concerning, and I'm curious if if this aligns with how much you think you're sleeping. I guess it depends on... I mean, yeah, a lot of nights I feel that I am... I try and get eight hours. If it went from mm. time switch off and close my eyes to when the alarm goes off, there's always I'm always planning eight hours. But yeah, by waking up, being awake, trying to stop perpetual dreams, the kind of problems I go through, literally kind of, yeah, struggling with not having the same repetitive dream again, because that's what wakes me up. Normally it's kind of some anxious dream of choose door one, two or three, something ridiculous. And literally I close my eyes, I'm back in that decision time again. Then I wake up going, I haven't got to make that bloody decision. So yeah, with all the that kind of activity, I'm not surprised it, it feels like it does knock a couple of hours off my plans sleep mm -hmm. um, as well mm -hmm. as turning over every time i turn over i don't know how many times it's normal to turn over but if i reckon i turn over probably eight to ten times a night and i'm conscious i'm turning over because i'm tutting going oh why can't i just have a night where i don't mm -hmm. turn over you know so yeah that doesn't surprise me too much yeah um, and i i think it's important for people to consider too that just because you're in bed from midnight to six for example doesn't mean you're getting six hours. You know, there's times where it takes you to fall asleep. There's times where you turn over, you wake up during the middle of the night. So I think that's an important take home for people is, um, you know, if your goal is to get seven hours, you would want to be in bed longer than seven hours. And so it might be more like midnight to 730, uh, you know, 11 to 6.30, those kind of things in order for you to get that full uh, seven hours that you're after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So okay. this one, one, yeah, this one is looking at wake after sleep onset. So you mentioned, you know, you have awakenings during the middle of the night. So the, this is looking at different scenarios where you've fallen asleep, but how much are you awake during the night after you've fallen asleep? And that's what wake after sleep onset is. And so here we kind of divided it into different sections. So you had about a week where you were consuming caffeine. You had a week where you were kind of during that transition period. 
And then we saw in your questionnaires that you had about a week of um, illness. So you have like a bad cold. And then we also measured your sleep or activity, categorized it into post illness as well. So here, I guess the main kind of takeaway is that with caffeine, so when you were drinking caffeine, you had about 57 minutes, so almost an hour of wake during the night. So wake after sleep onset versus during that transition period when you were off caffeine, you know, that was more like 38 minutes. So a lot less wake during the night when you were um, off caffeine during that transition period. Now with the illness, um, you know, it slightly went up the wake after sleep onset went up. So it looks like you had about 45 minutes, 46 minutes of wake um, during that illness period. And then what was really interesting for us is, um, you know, this post illness period, we weren't quite sure what was going on. Um, but it looked like you were at about 50 minutes of wake after sleep onset. So I'm just curious from your standpoint, um, you know, was there more stress during that period or could something have been impacting that, that last few study nights that you were recorded? You know, one of, one of the, first of all, the most, yeah, the biggest takeaway from this, and if you're not seeing the slide was like the fall from nearly 60 minutes down to 38 minutes the week after not uh yeah after stopping the caffeine that's quite a drastic difference so that's encouraging but the yeah one of the things that this highlighted was how difficult it is to do must be to do research and get accurate studies mm -hmm. because all of these plans of beating your record getting 35 glorious nights of information center cerebra <laughs> but life gets in the way you know and i hadn't calculated for half term so suddenly my two beautiful sons are at home for a week and I'm going to deal with that. Um, um, and then the family getting COVID, that was nice. So I'm lying in bed with somebody who's suffering the symptoms of that. And then I had my own illness as well, which was just a cold at the time. Um, even my in-laws came down and they were ill as well. So yeah, life really got in the way. Um, but I think that's a, a take home for therapists across the board as well. When you're making plans for your patients, if you're a soft tissue therapist, you've got to realize that you might have the most fantastic rehab plan in the world laid out for them, but life will get in the way. And I think that was something which was kind of brought up maybe by Jonathan last week is keep asking questions, keep seeing how people are, um, because life means that our plans have got to be flexible and sleep quality and quantity will change potentially from day to day, week to week. So we've got to keep that subjective going and asking, is there anything at the moment which could be influencing your sleep and then making changes, you know, to, to deal with that. So yeah, and it's pretty negative. It's a shame it happened, but it, in other respects, it really opened up my eyes to, yeah, how like John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Mm hmm. Absolutely. It's it's not it's not easy to control all of these variables. And I know you were trying to kind of be constant with your other activities like exercise, alcohol, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult it, when you're in the wild, um, you know, when when we're measuring sleep in the wild, all of these different factors could be playing a role. Well, you know what you just mentioned, alcohol after the illness. Okay, so when I gave up with the caffeine, on giving up caffeine that week afterwards, I was, I didn't want any stimulants. So there was no alcohol, no chocolate, none of that kind of feel better kind of food or needed shots when you're just dealing with stuff. 
but definitely in the last week, this might explain the post illness. I think I went back to probably a six o'clock glass of wine or something just to get myself together. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe alcohol being introduced at that stage could have been a factor. Um, mm-hmm. I think I put that on the questionnaire. The questionnaires, by the way, just for people listening and interested in this, the questionnaires are so important as well because it, it made me accountable, which is another thing I took away from this study. It's so useful if you are trying to look after, if you're trying to help a, uh, a client or a patient help themselves and become self-sufficient, the big brother method of having them report to you is fantastic because I'm filling out these questions and having to admit that, yeah, I did have alcohol today. Yes, I did do some work. Yes, I was looking at my laptop, you know, but it, it made me realize again for a patient how that having someone be big brother for that time is really useful um, as opposed to just sending them away and thinking, right, make sure you do that. Bye. See you in a month, you know, because we're human at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can uh, go to the next slide. Right, what we got? Okay, so this is looking at your average sleep depth uh, with ORP. So again, this is the uh, sleep depth scale that we're looking at where lower values are more deeper states of sleep and higher values are more um, awake-like states of, of, of sleep and wake occurring during the night. And so what we see here is with the caffeine, we see a higher ORP non-REM value and a higher ORP um, total recording time, so ORP across the entire recording time, when you were using caffeine versus that transition period and versus that illness period. Um, And then again, in the post-illness, the last seven days of the recording, you know, it looks like there's something weird going on where we're starting to see higher values. But in general, kind of takeaway here is that you seem to have um, deeper states of sleep when you weren't using caffeine in this particular um, graph. Okay, that's pretty clear. Again, if you're not seeing these, if you listen to the podcast and you want to see these, then just go to the Sports Therapy Association on YouTube and you'll be able to watch the video. Okay, all the, all the, all the recordings on video are available on the YouTube channel. So just, um, yeah, if you listen to this thinking, oh, I can't handle this, it's doing my brain in, um, this is going to keep me awake, don't let that happen. Go to YouTube and you can see all these graphs in their full glory. Okay, so that's pretty cool. That's kind of suggesting what we suspect that the effect that caffeine can have on people. Mm-hmm. Let's go to this one. So this is evening sleepiness. So as a part of your questionnaires, you filled out a question, um, how alert or sleepy are you feeling right now? And so this is just looking at the differences between those periods. And what we found was um, higher higher levels on the scale means more sleepiness. So here with caffeine, um, and this this was significant with the transition period. So we saw that you were uh, less sleepy when you were using caffeine based on this question versus when you were off caffeine. And it looked like during that illness period, you were actually the sleepiness, sleepiest out of all of these different categories. And then for the kind of last seven days post illness, it was more similar to that transition period. So overall, um, kind of confirms that caffeine can make you more alert in the evening, uh, which makes it potentially harder to fall asleep. Okay, good graph. Again, worth checking it out. The visuals are yeah, very impressive um, seeing it on a graph like that. 
Um, we say the transition period, is there any solid data or does it depend on the person as to how long it takes for caffeine to get out of the system? Yeah, seven days is is typically probably a normal um, period for uh, caffeine to get out of the system. So I would say it would be out of your system at least by the end of that. Um, but yeah, it for subjectively, it can take people, you know, up to two weeks to start feeling back to normal. So um, yeah, there's a lot of variability depending on the person. Okay. Um, next slide. Okay, this was your sleep time, so your total sleep time, and whether or not your you reported your sleep was disturbed last night. So on the hour or on the days where you said that your sleep wasn't really disturbed last night, um, you actually had more total sleep time versus the days where you said your sleep was disturbed last night. Nothing mind blowing here, but still kind of a confirmation and something we would expect. Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And yeah, this, so we have two more slides on the performance element. So this is a really kind of interesting part of, of what you did during this uh, study. So you were, you did a reaction time test on the app where you would see a stimulus, respond to that stimulus as fast as you could. And then we actually tracked how often you had a lapse of attention. And so a lapse of attention is defined as uh, 500. So taking more than a half a second to respond to that stimulus. And so here we're looking at how many times you did have lapses of attention um, versus your total sleep time. And what we found was that when you were getting more sleep, you actually had less lapses of attention on, on the days when you were completing that, um, that test. Which is really significant because, yeah, the effects of having poor sleep on your focus it has been linked to all sorts of terrible disasters, even maybe things like Chernobyl and kind of oil tankers. It's all kind of often linked, isn't it, to poor sleep and, and fatal car accidents. So, yeah, it's a big one, the link between lack of coordination and lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay, similar one. Definitely. And I think this is the last one, but we're looking at your, so with ORP, with that sleep depth scale, we're able to look at actually levels, your levels of objective alertness um, during the sleep period while you were awake. So what's interesting here is that when your ORP wake during the previous night, so when you're in more of kind of a deeper state of sleep, you're not with that full wakefulness during those awakenings, um, your lapses of attention were actually lower when the ORP wake was, um, was lower during the night. So kind of just to sum that up, it's um, kind of a metric of sleep quality for those uh, awakenings kind of confusing to understand. But when those awakenings, when you were more um, like drowsy during those awakenings on those nights, um, you actually had less lapses of attention the following day versus those nights where you had were fully awake, you woke up in the middle of the night, you were fully awake, um, you would actually have more lapses of attention the following day. So that's kind of a link between some of these and um, performance, which I think is 
is really exciting for us. We do, we, you know, we want to improve sleep, but I think how people are going to listen is how does improved sleep impact my performance? And so that's, that's really exciting for us to see some of these relationships for you and for some of the other studies that we're running. Yeah, definitely. Definitely shows and more shows the impact of if you are getting worse quality sleep or less duration sleep on your whole next day and then the accumulative effect of it if you keep doing this. So, wow, really interesting. I, I didn't think the graphs were going to um, come out so definitively kind of in the, on, on the side of reducing caffeine. The last week was weird, but there was factors for that, um, which um, and there was consistent in it. So if we take away the last week, it definitely showed um, a slope of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also highlights the difference between quantity and quality, which we talked about with our other three guests quite a lot. Um, it's not just a case of going to bed um, at 12 and getting up at seven, thinking I've had seven hours. If you're not getting your um, quality during those seven hours, mm-hmm. then a whole load of different problems. Um, yeah absolutely well thank you for taking on this experiment uh, really really thank you um, i'm hoping it's been used for other people and we will continue the conversation right i know you've got to get a, away it's two minutes to amy so what i'm going to do is say goodbye to, thank you very much to you and then i'll sum up my feelings after you've gone onto your busy day thank you so much amy it's it's been amazing and i know we're gonna have a follow-up in a few months time maybe with the rest of the gang and yourself and um, once people have time to digest this um so um, i look forward to that that would be great. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Um, you can go along and do your thing now. I'm, all right. Take Thanks, care. Amy. Really, really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, there we go. So, yeah, Dr. Amy um, has got stuff to do. So, um, yeah, thanks again. Um, I, I, I briefly looked at those about an hour ago just to get an idea of what was on them. But obviously having Dr. Um Amy explained to me, um, yeah, it really shows the effect of caffeine, which is my goal to see how, how, how taking caffeine out of the equation does affect a lot of factors. And hopefully for you, it has um, put into diagrammatic form what we're talking about when we're talking about different stages of sleep with the deep sleep, with the dreaming, so the REM stage, um, the, the latency time of how long it takes to get to sleep. Um, the effect in terms of performance the day after, which we which we measured for a very clever app, which basically as soon as you see the dot appear, um, then you've got to press, okay? Uh, or as soon as you see the number start, you've got to press it. And obviously the reaction time, if you're tired and you haven't slept well, it will get up to kind of like, or sometimes over 500 because I'm just like, ooh. Um, and sometimes if you're on the ball, then you press it. And I think the lowest I got was kind of like 100 or something. So um really effective way of, of seeing it and and the graph showed definitely um improved sleep quality the next day the next morning my reaction time and coordinated time to respond to that was better and the other thing we measured as well which i'm really good at was was lux a so light intensity i've naturally all my life i can't exist in the evenings with bright lights everywhere i always dim things down so that's not a problem for me but um for a lot of people which we've seen with the three guests um light is the first lowest hanging fruit yeah melatonin the release of melatonin um is in relation uh, to the amount of light which is going through the eyes there's a crossover point it reaches what's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus and that measures how much light is coming in the eyes and 
it's triggered when the light level reduces to start releasing uh, or to prompt the pineal gland to release um, melatonin. So light, it's not just that, it's temperature as well and other kind of circadian rhythms going on. But light is the biggest port of call for either yourself or your clients if they are having disrupted sleep. Um, if you want to get tired, then come six o'clock, you've got to think jazz club. You've got to think dimmed lighting. You've particularly got to avoid the blue light, which unfortunately is kind of the LED stuff from electronic devices. You can get blue light filters if you've got to do work. But having that blue light in your eyes um, is one of the worst things um, that can stop that melatonin release and delay um, that whole growing tired process, which needs to happen um, before you. Um, so that when you do go to bed, you are tired. Um, so, yeah, the light's a big one. The temperature's another one as well, making sure that you're not sitting in, 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 in heat because your body starts that getting tired process when temperature drops as well, which is why we wash our faces before we go to sleep. It's not because the hot water makes us tired. We have a hot shower. It's because once you've had a hot shower or washed your face, then the heat evaporates off and your body temperature drops. So all very fascinating stuff. So um, just having a look at the questions now, I'm going to stick around just for five minutes, have a little look at the questions. Um, just in case you listen to the podcast and you started here, there was a guest, um, Dr. Amy Bender was here and she's just been through my results. All I'm doing now is just having a little chance to talk because Dr. Um, Amy Bender had to go off and do something. So just having a little look at the questions in case you've got anything or any impact it had on you guys um, listening to the results. Gary Benson, who's the founder of the STA, has said anecdotally starting exercise, closing curtains and not consuming caffeine has improved my sleep health. Yeah, I mean, as always, working with the individual and, and looking at how it affects you um, is is priority and we need to do that all the time as therapists but there are like I say you know that kind of low-hanging fruit the light's really important um, if you're getting loads of light in the evening artificial light which unfortunately man invented um, as opposed to other animals we just switch lights on when basically nature is telling us to get tired and starting the process from happening no man comes along and decides we can just put on artificial light and that's led to all sorts of god knows how many diseases and things um so yeah nighttime light and then also in the morning as well um or during the night you need that darkness if you've got light coming in at four in the morning the light stimulates wake OK, so you need to make sure if you want to get quantity and quality, you need to have that blackout or you need to have a mask on. I'm masked up and earplugs in every night because I need that to avoid myself from waking up and to stop the carousel from starting. So light's really important. Um, and then in the morning, if you're really groggy, then, yeah, get some real daylight. If you struggle in the mornings, then the research kind of shows open your front door, get some natural daylight, you know, have your breakfast there, sit opposite a window. The light is our guardian. It controls our circadian rhythm along with temperature and food intake and stuff just to control whether we're awake or sleepy. So I'm glad um, um, those have had an effect on you, Gary. Um, Mr. Don't draw my curtains and wonder why I wake up four o'clock in the morning. Um, and indeed, if any of you listen to any of what we've done over the four weeks um, and it's affected you, then I'd love to hear about it um matt at the sta.co.uk um share some stuff with me if you want it kept confidential then let me know if you're not worried about me sharing it with others and let me know at the end of the email as well because it's so nice to do our own little kind of research and hear about although it's all anecdotal 
suddenly becomes n equals 50 and you're all reporting this and this has improved and what was recommended here has really helped um then that's 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 a type of evidence as well it's important um so anyway right we've come to the end of our focus on sleep i hope that's really helped um all of you in different ways the feedback i've had so far has been if you're a therapist then getting your head around it to either help yourself first of all has been really interesting if you're trying to run a um, have a living and kind of look after patients and be animated and have the energy to especially if you're doing massage all day long kind of exercises with people then sleep's so important um, physically and cognitively it's really important so that's been one take home hopefully for some of you i know for some of you it has been and then the other big take home is is looking after your patients okay um if they're coming in and they report poor sleep then don't just brush it off and go oh you know try shutting your curtains maybe i doubt even any of you recommend that but don't just brush it off a lot of questions we put on that medical park queue they tick it and we don't really go down it anymore do we what's stress like at home they put a nine out of ten do you start that conversation do you have the confidence to go oh i noticed you put a nine out of ten here um for, for your stress at home maybe we should have a little chat about that i mean whilst you're really stressed and your chance of recovering from this proximal hamstring tendinopathy is going to be hindered because there's a relationship between how fast your system is going to recover and how much stress you're putting in there do you have that conversation i know people who join us live probably do because you guys are just total geeks but if you listen to the podcast have a look at your medical park you and see how you are for if they do respond to the stress question or if they do respond to the um for example uh what else is on there um maybe if you've started putting on pain during sex maybe if you've started putting on um incontinence okay if you're going to put these on, which you need to, thanks to all the guests we've had, you need to have these in your park queue now to open up the door to discussion for things like hypermobility, for things like uh, menstrual problems, for pelvic health for men and women, um, for all of these things we've covered for rheumatology with Jack March. You need to do a little bit of swatting now so you've got the confidence to open up that conversation with your clients if they do tick the box that they're getting up three times a night because uh, don't let them just brush it off and go, well, I'm at that certain, you know, age in my life now where it's to be expected. Um, I know people who have restored quality in their lives considerably because they've been to the GP and said, I need to do something about this. I'm having to get up five, five, four, five times a night to have a pee. Um, and it's just ruining my sleep quality and quantity. There are procedures you can have done to improve that there's tablets you can be taking and if you can do something that's relatively simple to improve your sleep quality and quantity it can have a huge effect on you and the people around you and all that sort of stuff um but anyway so hopefully there's been some take-homes for you um like i say all feedback very much welcomed to matt at the sta okay or just chuck it in the comments if you're watching this on youtube and put something in the comments if you're watching it on facebook on the one chat live facebook page um then i'd love to hear from runners about whether this has changed any of the episodes have changed what you're doing reliability on your fitbits and um, where you get into a stage where you were listening to what the data said rather than listening to your own body because that's something we've talked about quite a lot uh, with our guests with dr olivia walks for example that orthosomnia that fear of not getting a perfect night's sleep screw up with your mind that can that can really play around with your head 
anyway, I better let you all go now. Um, that marks the end of our focus on sleep for the month of April. What's happening in May, I hear you say. Well, in May, our focus is going to be nutrition um, through popular demand. And um, yeah, very excited. Um, I've got guests all lined up for you. I've been super organized. Um, and we are going to start off next week with a guest we had on a while ago, Dr. Gary Mendoza, who's going to be here uh, next Tuesday to kick things off. Um, let me bring this up for you. There we go. So, yeah, so Dr. Gary Mendoza is going to be in uh, the house live at Tuesday at eight o'clock GMT plus one uh, to start off our month's focus on nutrition. I've called it nutrition, mind over matter. So those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Gary Mendoza, um, PhD, doctor in nutrition, but also very much involved in the behavior state to make decisions um, regarding changing your lifestyle and nutrition. Uh, we did a chat with him um last year on motivational interviewing so knowing at what stage your client or patient is before you expect them to make a change in their behavior a change in their habit it was one of my favorite honestly one of my favorite personally episodes in terms of making me think what's the point of giving advice to your client if you don't know what's whether they're ready to take that advice you know the advice you give will change depending on what state they're in um, so that was a real um, eye opener. And I'm thrilled that Gary is coming back next Tuesday to uh, talk about the relationship between behavior change and state of mind with changes, necessary changes in nutrition. Um, so that's going to be happening next Tuesday. And then we've got um, uh, another three guests for the remainder of March. We'll all be talking about nutrition. Um, off the top of my head, I'm excited to announce actually Matt Fitzgerald um one of my all-time i can say the word hero yeah just a hero in terms of his writing and um, the stuff he's gone through in his life and um, he's going to be with us in a couple of weeks um talking about um nutrition um for performance um and also he's suffering the the um effects of long-term covid as well so it'll be a great chance to listen to him and how that's affecting him a little bit as well and catching up with matt fitzgerald fantastic author if you're runners listening to unchat live um podcast then matt fitzgerald is a name you should have on your shelves with books like um diet cults is his most famous one in nutrition because he's a nutritionist himself also uh, brain matters um you've got life as a marathon um so many great books just Matt Fitzgerald book now right then so um that's all for tonight let me get rid of gary from there we'll be back next tuesday um hope you all well and um yeah if you listen to podcasts just remind it sounds like i'm nagging but the success of a podcast in getting the good word of our guests out to a large audience is about you leaving ratings and reviews i'm very happy to say that we've probably gained about on average 600 listeners an episode um, and a lot of that boils down to people actually sticking those stars on and writing a little comment. So if you are one of the two and a half thousand people who download this podcast, if half of you could leave a rating, then that would make my make my day. Um, if you're on an iPhone, then it takes seconds. You just go to your iPhone um, podcast app and it gives you an opportunity just to chuck in five stars and leave a comment. Um, if you're on Android, it's a bit more tricky. I think you still have to go to iTunes to do it. But 65% of our audience, I think, are on iPhones anyway. So iPhone users, please make it one of your week's goals to leave um, a rating and a comment for this. If you like it. If you don't like it, then that's fine. Don't bother. 
putting anything in there. All right, people. Um, Matt Phillips signing off. Look after each other, and hopefully we'll see you next Tuesday, uh, 8 p.m. GMT plus one. Take care. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.